and welcome to On Focus, brought to you by the Focal Therapy Clinic, where we connect you with issues facing men diagnosed with prostate cancer that are little known, less understood, and almost never talked about. Prostate cancer is now the most commonly diagnosed cancer in the UK. And with this somber fact comes a multitude of challenges and opportunities. I'm Claire Delmar. Today I'm speaking with Tim Dutteridge, consultant urologist at Southampton University NHS Trust and the Focal Therapy Clinic, and a pioneer in non-invasive treatments for prostate cancer. We're going to discuss how advances in the diagnostic pathway for prostate cancer give patients more opportunity to engage with their care and treatment. Tim, thanks for joining me today. It's a great pleasure, yes. I'd like to talk about this subject, uh, so it's, it's a pleasure to talk to you every single time. Excellent. So let's, let's go right in. I mean, you know, I think we, we all agree that the diagnostic pathway for prostate cancer has been revolutionized. I know that's a strong word, and I'd like for you to comment on that um, over the last 10 years. So how do you communicate this to patients? Well, I think the one thing that hasn't changed is the PSA test. And so perhaps that's the next revolution. But the, the revolutions that have occurred really uh, surround the use of imaging. In the past, where we used to have a high PSA or an abnormal prostate examination, which might have been found when men had symptoms, you know, really the next, te- the, well, the decision was whether to biopsy or not. And, and everyone recognizes, I think, now the value of uh, the multiparametric MRI scan. and. Uh, Basically, this MRI scan allows us to have diagnostic imaging, and and people are familiar with that with all sorts of other tumor sites, uh, breast cancer being a great example. Mm -hmm. And it's really from that change that all the other changes with biopsy have followed. The big change with biopsy, I suppose, is, um, and it it helps to try and understand some of the terminology here, but uh, traditionally the the biopsies were going through the rectal wall, and I think there's a big change uh, to move away from that into transperineal biopsy. And the, the chief uh, driving force behind that is to reduce infection. But that doesn't really uh, make the link with imaging. The, the, the thing that imaging has allowed is targeted biopsies. In the past, what we used to use was a systematic biopsy. And there are a number of different uh, uh, patterns of biopsy through the transrectal route that people used to follow. And, and so a lot of the academic focus was about trying to work out which of those patterns of biopsy was the best. Well, we've completely moved away from that. And now it's all about having an image with a lesion and, and targeted biopsy. And there are different ways of targeting the, the biopsy. And, you know, a good clinician will be able to just use their, their skills to uh, target the needle into the lesion. And they can look at the MRI scan, find the same area using the ultrasound and get a good targeted biopsy. Mm-hmm. And we call that cognitive fusion. So we're, we're joining in our mind the image on the MRI with the image on the ultrasound. That works for big lesions, but not for small lesions. And so the other big revolution is the use of uh, software fusion to basically uh, enhance the accuracy of that targeted biopsy. In terms of the changes, those are the two big changes, I think. Okay, yeah, they are big indeed. So, and there's a lot of terminology, as you quite rightly pointed out. Would you say it's fair to look at this pathway and its uh, sort of sequential elements, almost like a supply chain, and you know, one that patients can focus on any one link and begin to understand how that might affect him and, and what questions he should be asking. Um, so, you know, yeah. let's start with the MRI. What, what does a patient need to know to give him confidence in his care? There are lots of variables in this. Uh, first of all, you've got the type of scanner. And um, you can do a very good multi-parametric MRI scan on a 1.5 Tesla scanner. But, um, you know, some centers will have access to a three Tesla scanner. And it can give slightly better better resolution. And the the radiologists uh, uh, might uh, identify some features slightly better with that. So I think, you know, 
in an ideal world, you might go for a three Tesla scan every time. But some people aren't suitable for that. You know, the magnet strength uh, isn't, it means that some people can't go in there and uh, some of the side effects that sort of, you know, some people get nausea and things in a, in a strong magnet. But is but, one better um, than the other or are, are they more? I, 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 I think you can get adequate images with a good, uh, a well-conducted con 1.5 Tesla scan. But I think maybe a three Tesla scan would be preferable if, if one had access to that. And how many um, people, for example, in the UK would have access to that? Within uh, NHS services, I'd say it's patchy. Most of the big centers uh, would have one. But, I, I, you know, even in our center where we have one, not all of the scans are conducted on a three Tesla scan. The radiologist might sort of pick and choose a little bit which ones are done on the three Tesla scan. I think most of our initial scans are actually done on a 1.5 Tesla scanner. Uh, just because of the volume, but um, we get acceptable quality from a 1.5 Tesla. So, okay. you know, okay. it's it's. I don't think it's a deal breaker that issue. Okay, so um, so they're in a 1.5. The majority of people. What else should they? Yeah. Do? Well, I think that the way that the scan is conducted uh, should follow most of the protocols laid out in, uh, for instance, the ESUR guidelines. This is the European Society of Uroradiologists, and okay. uh, there are several publications. I think we'll put a link of one up just to give an idea of the technical detail that goes into making a really good prostate MRI. And that's not just how the sequences are put together, uh, which include you know, the T2-weighted uh, sequence, diffusion-weighted sequences, um, you know, making sure you get the, uh, the B value that's um, appropriate for prostates, and also the use of contrast. I mean, contrast is my preference, but I know there's a lot of debate about it. And it adds some additional diagnostic kind of resolution, if you like, but, um, it, you know, a lot of places so are what, going for it. Diagnostic how? Like the strength of the cancer or the size? Well, it just, just helps to interpret areas that may look like cancer, but the enhancement characteristics may add to the radiologist's ability to differentiate between inflammation or scarring, or, and particularly after previous treatment, it's really helped to have contrast uh, if, you, if you're looking at patients who've had previous ablation, for instance. The use of contrast is something which I prefer and uh, many other people prefer but in terms of uh, the efficiency of uh, an NHS pathway in the supply chain as you put it it's challenging sometimes for centers to have contrast because it takes longer in the scanner and therefore you know one can do fewer scans in a day and, and this uh, you know can be a challenge for the centers so uh, there's a lot of work going into looking at the the use of biparametric is, is the sort of terminology MRI scans and I think, you know, it's a pretty close thing whether, whether actually the contrast in that initial diagnostic setting is really necessary. And uh, I think more research will come out. Okay, um, so, so I'm a patient and I now know that I need to have an MRI and this MRI is going to determine whether or not I need to have a, a biopsy, okay? Yes. Um, so you've given me a few variables. And, and again, I'm, I'll point listeners to our, to our website later for more detail on this. But so let's just say uh, our patient needs to have an MRI. He understands why. He understands that it's going to be interpreted to uh, determine whether or not he needs a biopsy. So how critical then is the reporting? And it sounds like you know, more variables occur here. Does the reporting vary amongst practitioners? And, and can that lead to bad diagnostic and treatment decisions? Well, I think that um, the first thing is, in an ideal world, the, the a prostate MRI should be reported by somebody reporting a lot of prostate MRIs. Mm -hmm. And, you know, uroradiologists, you know, will have this as one of their main uh, chunks of their work because uh, it's a high volume pathway. So there's a lot of these scans to report. And if they've been through the sort of training of prostate MRI reporting, uh, then, you know, hopefully you will get a kind of standard of report which uh, meets those ESUR guidelines. Now, not all centers, again, for time pressures, are able to produce 
uh, a report which includes uh, an image representation of the location of any lesions and that is really the ideal where you get a graphical representation and maybe even some uh, representative images embedded in that report to show you where abnormalities are but I think at the very least you know you do want to be having reporting using the Likert or Pyrads reporting system these are two different systems uh, the Pyrads ones purely relies on the imaging characteristics whereas the Likert score does incorporate some of the clinical characteristics there's again debate about which of those is best uh, well, basically, uh, it's a one to five scale with one being uh, benign and five being cancer and you've got shades of gray in between. And the, the bottom line is if you've got a three, which means equivocal, there's a strong chance you should have a biopsy. And, you know, I personally recommend biopsy for all, all, all of the Likert or Pyrads three cases. But um, in patients who have a low PSA density, that basically measures the amount of PSA relative to the size of the prostate. In those cases uh, where you score a three, you know, you can consider avoiding a biopsy and maybe, you know, reviewing the situation after a year with repeated imaging. And that's not at all unreasonable. Mm-hmm. And uh, people use cut points of, say, 0.12 uh, for, uh, you know, when, whether you have a, a biopsy or not, you know, with high PSA density above that level, triggering a biopsy. So I think you can discuss that with the patient and also have a sense of their comfort level with risk. You know, some people want to avoid a biopsy at all costs. Other people want to make sure we don't you know, leave a stone unturned and, 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 and get every bit of information. So you have to just assess the patient's... Uh, okay, so, so image pyrad, and that's a piece of information that the radiologist determines through from the image. What about light? Yes. Can you just describe that briefly? So, so Likert is effective. It's a sort of parallel system which incorporates um, a sort of clinical judgment. And so um, if with the PSA and the... Uh, interpretation uh, of the image the radiologist feels that you know that they want to sit on the fence they'll give it a three if they think they're suspicious they'll give it a four if they're absolutely sure it's cancer they'll give it a five and on the other side if they if they think it's probably benign but there are some characteristics which are not entirely normal they might give it a two but if it's plum normal they'll give it a, a score one so it's it mu- it's much more of a a clinical judgment by the, the radiologist do would, would a radiologist communicate both of those scores or one or the other uh, normally, they just communicate one system that, that they stick to. Okay. And otherwise, it gets it gets confusing enough as it is, I think. Uh, yeah. Okay. So the patient should know that the communication between the radiologist and the urologist based on the image is going to be based on this, this score. And That's right. It's, it's important to say after, after treatment, it's probably more appropriate to use the Likert uh, scale because after any ablation and so on, uh, the Pyrads is not really designed for that situation. Okay. All right. So those, to me, those are the big critical things to understand at least at a surface level about the imaging. So then, then you, the urologist, makes a decision about whether to biopsy or whether or not to biopsy, and that's based on the information we've just discussed. Mm-hmm. So what does a patient need to know about the different types of biopsies? I know you've touched on this a little bit earlier, but maybe you could just sum that up here as we move down the supply chain, so to speak. I'll just get transrectal ultrasound out of the way because I think it's, it's, it's not completely historic. It's still done in many centers. It's a very convenient way of having uh, patients come through the system. You can get through maybe six or seven patients in the morning quite comfortably. Uh, but really, you are limited to sampling the, the peripheral zone uh, and you can do some targeted biopsies. It's quite possible to do that um, with, with this cognitive fusion and even some of the systems allow for software fusion using transrectal biopsy but it's quite difficult to sample the front of the gland it's quite painful to have to insert the needle a couple of centimeters in and then fire it rather than just firing it when it's been inserted five millimeters or so through the rectal wall 
And so I think that there are some limitations with transrectal biopsy. And of course, you've got the infective risks that are associated with transrectal biopsy. And how, how severe is that? How, 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 how much should a patient well, be concerned? Well, it varies from centre to centre. It depends on the local um, flora uh, and the bugs, basically, that are around and also what antibiotic protocol is used. Some centres are avoiding infection by giving three different types of antibiotics. Others uh, may be using uh, a pre-biopsy test to look for resistant organisms uh, just by culturing the the fecal flora. Um, So there's lots of different ways to reduce it, but, I mean, it really is trying to avoid a very avoidable problem if you just don't put the needle through the rectal wall. And, and that's really why everyone, I think, feels that transperineal biopsy would be better. Mm-hmm. Um, now, that the, the problem historically has been that with a transperineal biopsy, and this is a biopsy where the needle travels through the skin just in front of the anus and behind the scrotum, you know, the problem is that that's quite uh, uncomfortable to do that under local anaesthetic historically. And, and so it's all been done under general anaesthetic. And clearly the resource implications for that are quite significant. And so it's, it's not just the needles passing, but actually we've used this thing called a, a stepper and a template. And so a stepper basically holds the ultrasound and it's a sort of a rigid thing which uh, moves in and out of the rectum. And the trouble is if you're awake and that uh, is sitting in the rectum, that's very uncomfortable, not just the passage of the probe, but the fact it's sort of a fi- on a fixed jig mm. and uh, the patient is having this thing moved inside in and out and it, you know patients don't tolerate that so well and they end up moving around which really then compromises uh, a situation if you're doing software fusion that there has been an advance alongside improvements in the technique of local anesthetic uh, there's been an advance with the use of something called a precision point needle guide and i think for delivering outpatient you know ambulatory uh, transperineal biopsy uh, this allows the ultrasound to be freehand which means you know, you, you're not forcing it against the patient, which is what causes the discomfort. And, you know, a combination of, of the transperineal approach and the avoidance of this kind of fixed stepper means that the procedure is pretty well tolerated and it then overcomes the uh, problems of transrectal biopsy, uh, which is, you know, you can't sample the anterior part of the gland. Mm-hmm. With the precision point biopsy, it's quite straightforward to uh, sample the front of the gland. Okay. So I think that we're going to see in the high turnover situation uh, where resources are important and general anesthetic is not possible that the precision point biopsy will largely take over and and I think there will still be a place for general anesthetic uh, targeted biopsies uh, and and systematic biopsies so I think that the fusion uh, is is probably going to be a bit more reliable when you've got a static situation and you don't have the 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 freehand uh, ultrasound probe and I think when you need to take lots of biopsies in a prostate mapping situation, which doesn't apply to, to all, but you know, uh, when you need to take lots of biopsies, I think it will be more comfortable for patients to have that under a general anaesthetic. So for the time being, I think my preference is to offer a general anaesthetic where it's possible, but where, where that's a challenge for um, you know, resource purposes, then the precision point transperineal biopsy is probably the, the favoured approach now. Okay, so that's um, it's a lot for patients to take on, but again, we it is. We've, uh, I think a diagram would almost be. Yeah, but thing. the key takeaway is that a transperineal over a um, transrectal is is. I would say so. Yeah. from a both an infection point of view and often from a targeting point of view, um, and often from an anesthetic point of view. No. The one thing that people ask me a lot about any kind of biopsy is about seeding, and I don't know uh, where they're finding information suggesting that seeding is a problem, but. Uh, I've never come across a case. There's certainly a couple of reported cases I've seen, but it's not a problem uh, that we encounter. 
Um, and I think for a tumor to seed through a prostate biopsy, uh, you're dealing probably with a very aggressive type of cancer anyway, and not the sort of standard type of prostate cancer. Right. And um, I, I'd imagine that the seeding would be uh, one of many problems in those circumstances. So I've never seen in my practice seeding from a transperineal or a transrectal biopsy. Okay. Uh, so, so I don't think men should be worried about that. Okay, so now let's move on to the sort of not final, but the maybe the last stage before you ultimately have a diagnosis, I guess, and, and that's um, in the pathology. I mean, is the provider and the process for um, pathology or histopathology something a patient should be concerned about? Well, uh, most uropathology, you know, will be reported by a specialist, but you may, if you're in a center where um, it's uh, not a specialist center, where maybe... Um, you know, prostatectomies are not being undertaken, just the diagnostic side of things. You may have a generalist uh, reporting the biopsies. And in some centers, those biopsies are then re-reported at the, uh, the tertiary center, you know, where uh, we have the MDTs occurring. Um, but if that's not the case, particularly if the, the, the biopsy grade or the uh, details on the biopsy are critical to your decision making, you may wish to consider getting a, a second opinion on that. We've certainly seen cases you know where where that has changed and where that has led to a an alteration uh, in in the in the decision. Uh, the other thing is about the nature of the report. Uh, some uh, pathologists uh, who are still um, not familiar with the use of focal therapy may not give the details of each individual core, uh, which allows you then to plot whereabouts the cancer is and help to plan focal therapy. So I think that making sure that you've got in the report enough information to determine the location where the disease is and where it is not. And also which side has what grade. So you know, the right might have a low volume Gleason 3 plus 3 and the left might have a moderate volume 3 plus 4. And you know, that kind of case would be suitable for focal therapy. But if the summary is just that you've got cancer on both sides and it's 3 plus 4, which is still correct, it's just too, uh, much, uh, much more of a generalization, uh, you know, it doesn't give you enough information to know. And so in those cases, we sometimes have to re-report re the biopsies as well. And then finally, I mean, all this so-called supply chain gets pulled together through something called the, the multidisciplinary team or the MDT. Um, mm -hmm. And I know you've been a strong advocate and innovator around MDTs, um, which I guess in some ways can be considered the, the most important part of the pathway, because I guess this is where you determine, you know, what are the options for the patient and where you really engage him. Can you just explain briefly how these work and how a patient can engage with the process? The first thing that the MDT is not something which engages with the patient, which is its chief problem. It's basically a business meeting amongst specialists and we have all the information drawn together and it serves uh, a number of purposes. It's largely something that, if you like, belongs with the, MD, with the NHS, uh, but uh, in the private sector, these meetings have also sprung up, but um, they, they serve slightly different purposes. With, within the NHS, the first target was to make sure that patients had an opinion about their cancer, which included all of the relevant uh, specialists, including you know the radiologist, histopathologist, and the oncologist and the surgeons. And that way that it meant that all the relevant options were considered. And I think that there's a, a bit of a difficulty with recommendations coming out of MDTs because the, the person who's missing from that room is the patient, and it's not possible to have this meeting with patients involved. The, the net result is that you, you are missing a very important uh, bit of information, and it may be that some of that's captured in the clinic letters where the patient has been involved, but very often elements will be missing from that. And, and so I think at, at best, um, the MDT can assimilate the information although sometimes it fails to do that. It can uh, identify the relevant options 
And again, sometimes MDTs fail to do that. And then it can uh, allow the clinician who sees the patient to discuss the, the findings, a bit of a guide as to where um, the likely best option for the patient is. But you know, the person who sees this MDT report really should start afresh with the patient and use the MDT opinion as a sort of uh, a clue, but not as a sort of a diktat. Okay. And, and I think um, this is where uh, you know, things can sometimes go wrong especially where the MDT has misinterpreted something. I've seen cases where the MDT has, has an outcome written down which is completely incorrect, you know, and, and so human error can come into place. It's very important clinicians check everything, make sure that the MDT has got it right. Also, sometimes the MDTs might have a biased view. You know, for instance, some MDTs don't mention focal therapy at all. They have a, a biased view against it mm-hmm. and just say, you know, because it's, it's not in a guideline, it shouldn't be even talked about. You know, I, th- I think that that is unfair because uh, we have sufficient evidence, in my view, to say that men should be presented this as an option where it's a suitable option. Mm-hmm. And, and so I think, you know, it may be that the MDT that you've, your case has been discussed at just wouldn't have considered it at all. And, and I think that that's a great shame. How does a patient and, then respond to the, to the MDT report? I think as far as the patient's concerned, I'm not sure they should take a great deal of um, attention to it. I think it's there as a tool in the NHS as much for managing the workflow of cases coming through so that people end up in the correct clinics and so on. Um, But I think in terms of trying to make a decision, I think it's far more valuable to have a discussion with a clinician to to get a feel for um, how the options are being explored and whether, you know, all of the options are being considered and, you know, it may be that the, the clinician says, well, I just don't know about that. Mm-hmm. And then you can say, well, I know a bit from my reading. I would like to know more from an expert. Can I have another opinion? Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, any clinician who resists that, I think is, is doing patients a disservice. I think that if a patient has an interest in a type of treatment, answers should be provided and in a balanced way. And, um, you know, sometimes people ask me about, um, you know, t- types of radiotherapy that I don't know about. I know that my colleagues might say, Oh, you know, like proton beam therapy, we don't normally recommend that and gives a few reasons. But if a patient really wants to know about it, uh, you shouldn't dismiss, you know, dismiss that. You should say, well, if you want to know about it, this is how you pursue that. And You operate um, that way. I mean, I know you're a big um, advocate of the, uh, the so-called Mon- Montgomery ruling from a few years ago, which kind of upholds me. Well, uh, well, I think that, you know, patients don't just give informed consent about procedures. They need to make an informed choice. And that means being informed about things you might not agree with. I mean, your job is to explain why you don't think it's a good idea if you don't think it's a good idea. Uh, but if the patient doesn't like your opinion, you know, that's their prerogative. You know, they should go and find uh, a, a doctor who can explain it in a way that um, they find agreeable. And I have to say, good practitioners of things like um, proton beam radiotherapy, for instance, have, I've seen letters where they've said, you know, I think you should have normal radiotherapy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if they're good clinicians, they will state factually you know what what is what is recommended so i think that you know if if you've not had that experience out of the mdt or out of your um, clinical discussion and you feel uh, that you're you you haven't been provided with that rounded opinion you know that's where uh, a second opinion can be helpful because it what it might do is completely just repeat what they've already told you and then it gives Mm -hmm. you confidence that what you were told the first time was correct Mm -hmm. Uh, but sometimes especially when you speak to someone who does uh, get involved with focal therapy you, you, you can find out whether or not you are a suitable candidate. And, um, you know, I, certainly in my practice, 
if I wouldn't normally recommend it, I don't recommend it. If somebody's really, really keen on focal therapy, but I think they should have surgery, I say you should have surgery or radiotherapy, uh, you know, whatever the options. Yeah, very important. Are. And, I, and I think it's important that, um, you know, people seeking a focal therapy opinion should be reassured that they're not just going to get a yes or no about focal therapy. They're yes, going to just get a, a, an overall holistic opinion about their case. Excellent. No, I, um, I think that's, that's crucial. Um, Tim, Thanks so much for sharing your experience uh, and insights. It's, pleasure, yeah. um, it's been an absolute pleasure talking with you. If you're interested in contacting Tim or learning more about imaging-led diagnostics and treatments, visit our website at www.thefocaltherapyclinic.co.uk, where you can access additional interviews with patients and clinicians about their experiences with prostate cancer. Thanks for listening. And for me, Claire Delmar, see you next time. <laughs>